The Dark Times is not intended for younglings, foundlings, or Padawan learners. Ask your Game Master's permission before listening. Welcome, young Skywalker. I've been expecting you. You'll no longer need those. Guards, leave us. I'm looking forward to completing your interview. In time, you will call me producer. You're gravely mistaken. You won't interview me as you did my father. Oh no, my young Jedi. You will find that it is you who are mistaken. About a great many things. His lightsaber. Ah, yes. A Jedi's weapon. Much like your father's. By now you must know your father can never be turned from the Dark Times podcast. So will it be with you. You're wrong. Soon I'll be a podcaster, and you with me. Welcome back to the Dark Times podcast. I'm Sam, your favorite Imperial Emperor. And I'm Steven, your favorite fledgling Padawan. Steven, uh, this is a very special episode. This is probably the specialist episode of The Dark Times yet. Folks, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our interview guest for today. Rodney Thompson is an award-winning game developer with work spanning three editions of Dungeons & Dragons, two board games, and of course, the lead designer of Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing game. In 2015, Rodney gave a kind farewell to Wizards of the Coast to work for Bungie, and is now a senior design lead on a little indie MMO known as Destiny 2. Rodney Thompson, welcome to the Dark Times podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's wonderful. So I I thought maybe we'd just get the easy questions out of the way first. Um, It's, (laughs) you know. Start me off with a few softballs. (laughs) Yeah, help you get back into the Star Wars mindset. I'm sure it's been a while. Well, what what first got you into Star Wars, Rodney? This is a, a I, I think everyone has a different answer to this question, and I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, it was actually my parents. Um, so the very first movie I saw in the theater was Return of the Jedi. It had just come out. I was three years old, and my parents took me to see it. I remember being I remember almost almost nothing about it except I remember being terrified of Jabba the Hutt, falling asleep in the middle, waking up in time to be scared of the Emperor, and falling asleep at the end. So. You know, uh, not exactly the great greatest cinema experience, but normal three year old things. Yep. Uh, And when I was growing up, Star Wars was one of those things that like it was one of the few things that my parents and I could watch together and really sort of bond over. Um, And like my parents are not like uh, nerd or nerd adjacent in any way. They just like Star Wars. Right. Uh, And so growing up, you know, we would we would watch it whenever it would come on. We had HBO. This is pre VHS. 
Nice. So we would watch it on HBO. <laughs> um, and then uh, another big thing for us was uh, our family vacations were always in Disney World. And they had the Star Tours ride in Disney's Hollywood Studios, which was Disney MGM Studios at the time. And I remember uh, we went there the year that, that MGM Studios opened and we rode Star Tours. I think it was like the next year because I don't think it was open at at Park Open. Uh, but we we rode Star Tours the first time it was open. And just like I have so many family memories uh, around me and my parents and my younger brother uh, and Star Wars. I, I One of my favorite stories to tell is that, gosh, I, th- I want to say I was like 15, 16 years old, something like that. And Disney was doing Star Wars weekends at MGM Studios. And so we'd go down there and. Uh, the guest one, uh, one of the times we were down there was Anthony Daniels. And, you know, I'd, I'd always wanted to meet uh, someone who was in Star Wars and he seemed like a, a really nice guy. So I was like, oh, I want to meet him. But they'd already cut off the queue to get in line to to meet him and get his autograph. So I was uh-huh. like, oh, OK, well, that's too bad. But then I was like, oh, there's another one. There's another uh, meet and greet in like two and a half hours because this was at like 11 a.m. and the next one was at like 1 30 p.m. and I was like oh that sounds great I'm gonna wait in line for that because the line had already formed now this was like June in Florida so it was hot and it was sunny and there was no shade because the the you know area where they had the queue was right out in the middle of the the pathway and so I'm sitting there roasting in the hot sun waiting <laughs> to get Anthony Daniels autograph my younger brother, who is he's four years younger than me uh, and pretty much my clone in every possible way. Like if there could be <laughs> twins separated by four years, that's me and him. Well, nice. he's he's a big Star Wars fan, too. And on the drive down, he and I had been quizzing each other out of the uh, Star Wars encyclopedia, the one that Bill Slavisek wrote, uh, but like a long, 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 long time ago. And uh, so he goes and they're having this trivia contest. He enters this trivia contest while I'm waiting in line, baking in the Florida sun. Uh, And he, at like 12 years old, ends up winning this trivia contest, right? Beating out grown adults and everything, right? So he wins this (laughs) trivia contest. And then, uh, you know, so like, I I have no idea this is happening, by the way. So like, he's off doing this. You're in line. I'm in line and roasting, right? (laughs) And so uh, the the MC gets up there. They start the little pre-show they do. They're uh, chatting and everything. And all of a sudden, I f- I like, you know, we all stand up. Uh, and all of a sudden, I feel this, like, tap on my shoulder. Uh, and I hear, oh, excuse me. And so I'm like, oh, someone's coming through. So I step aside. Well, of course, it's Anthony Daniels, like, weaving his way through the line, <laughs> wow. which was great, right? And so That's he great. gets up there. And they're like, hey, you know, we've got a really very special guest here. This young man just won the Star Wars trivia contest. And I was like, what and so they pull my brother up on the stage (laughs) and anthony daniels does his whole like pre-show routine like 10 minutes just standing there with his arm around my brother's shoulder chatting with him and like you know work and like i don't know if you guys have ever seen or met anthony daniels but he's very charismatic and he's very funny right he's got that sort of british patter right and so he you know he's joking around with my little brother and everything and like does this whole like 10 minute intro to his meet and greet uh, with his arm around my brother's shoulder, brings my brother to the front of the line, signs autographs for him on like a T-shirt and so this other thing. 
And then finally, uh, you know, he's like, all right, go ahead. Uh, and like, I get through the line. It's like another 30 minutes before I get up to the front. I was like, hey, you know, I meet Anthony Daniels. I'm like, yeah, that was my little brother earlier. He was like, oh, yeah, he was great. And it was awesome. I was like, OK, well, you know, good on good on my brother for getting to meet Anthony Daniels. But, you know, I, <laughs> I got what I wanted. I got to meet him. I got his autograph. We got to chat. It was great. And so I go back and uh, I leave the, the area where the meet and greet is. And I walk up to my parents and my dad just has this look on his face like someone has died. I'm like, what? What is the matter? And he's like, uh, I've got bad news. I forgot to uh, bring any extra film today. And I used up all the film in the camera taking pictures of your brother up on stage with Anthony Daniels. Oh, so I don't actually oh, have no. any photos of you with him. And I was just like, get me out of this family. I'm done. Oh, man. <laughs> Anyways. That's, oh, man. I can't even imagine the sibling envy behind a story like that. You know, it was just, it's just one of many stories of my brother or my parents and I in star Wars. So yeah, that like, that's my answer to how I got into it was uh, family drama. Wow. Uh, re- really quick, Rodney, can we turn your gain down just a little yeah, bit? Hang on. Just a little bit. Yeah, try. That's a lot better. Thank you. Okay. It'll be fine for the first 20 minutes. I was just wanted to triple check. Yeah, yeah quick no problem. Doing it. Yeah. We've learned a lot of lessons in, in audio quality. <laughs> we're like 35 episodes and this will be 36. This is our 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, on uh, on Saturday nights, me and two of my uh, other buddies who are also uh, tabletop game designers, we get together on Saturday nights and do a book club. But instead of a book club, it's comic books, right? Uh, oh, and we've, oh, that's cool. We've been recording them. Uh, so I've I've also been doing a lot of work to you know adjust sound quality and everything so this is probably just set up for our last recording are you able to share the names of those guys i'm, I'm curious oh it's uh logan bonner he's the lead designer of the pathfinder rpg and yes. daniel helmick awesome who, yeah. uh, dan worked with me on uh a couple of my own games he worked with me at wizards for a while uh he works at oh boy what's the name of that company in inscribed i can't remember uh and he now he's doing narrative work for video games that's so cool that's uh cool. sam and i are huge pathfinder 2 heads um mm, we, okay, we love yeah. it yeah so you're definitely familiar with logan's work absolutely so how about favorite star wars novel if, if you ever dug into those i did i did like you know basically <laughs> from from the time that the first ones the the zon trilogy came out all the yeah. way up through when I stopped working on it, I had to read every, I mean, I didn't have to read everything, but I consumed everything. Right. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, but unfortunately that means that uh, I have no contemporary knowledge of the EU. Uh, so I'm going to, mine is definitely going to be in that legends category. I think it probably, you know, I, I really love uh, both Mike Stackpole and Aaron Alston's writing. I really like their uh, X-Wing series. Uh, if I have to pick one, I probably pick I Jedi. I just, you know, one of the, the only. I, in fact, it might still be the only first person uh, Star Wars novel. But you know, just a great capstone to a lot of the stories that uh, that Mike had been working on. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that one. That's fantastic. Both as I mean, I don't have to tell you both the X Wing books and I Jedi kind of have their their own sub followings. Oh yeah, to stand alone. Those are those are fantastic books. I've Definitely. yet to even touch the um the x-wing books yet myself i'm i'm much just my lifestyle i'm, I'm really more into audiobooks sure yeah most because i stand around at work with a headset all day um yeah. <laughs> and uh but yeah i hear the audiobooks are, are heavily abridged uh for for the x-wing novels so i haven't given those a go yet 
Yeah, I've never listened to the audiobook, so I don't know. Uh, favorite Star Wars video game? That one is tough. Uh, gosh. Shadows of the Empire? You a Dash, Dash Rangar guy? You can say Empire at War. It's fine. <laughs> Shadows, Shadows of the Empire has a, a deep connection for me. Like, I, I, that, that hit me right in the sweet spot of my formative video game and nerddom years. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, like X-Wing versus TIE Fighter and X-Wing Alliance. Oh, yeah. Like the, I mean, and X-Wing and TIE Fighter, too. But so, like, you know, one of those would be in contention. I thought Fallen Order was fantastic. Yeah. Um, it was really good. I, I enjoyed the heck out of Squadrons recently. I, I got a VR headset and uh, a flight stick pretty much just for that. Uh, and it's <laughs> that's it's, fair. That's it's fair. really great. Yeah. I don't know. Boy, if I have to pick one. I think I'm going to go with like X-Wing Alliance just because I obliterated uh, an entire semester's <laughs> worth of free time in college playing X-Wing Alliance. Very respectable choice. <laughs> yeah. Saying anything else would feel like uh, unfair to X-Wing Alliance yeah, after all the time yeah, you put into it. Yeah. Definitely. Big one. And, you know, you th- this you can answer this any way you please. There, there never can be just one favorite Star Wars movie. Uh, I mean, that's there's no contest. It's still Empire Strikes Back. Right, which I mean, like, honestly, <laughs> like how many people don't say that? But, you know, I I just it, I, it used to be my least favorite when I was a kid. And then over time, it grew to be my favorite. I think it's the perfect combination in a lot of ways of George Lucas's creativity with just really solid filmmaking and editing and storytelling uh, all around. Right. Like, you know, one thing that I've kind of come to appreciate over the years is that while I, I definitely didn't agree with all of uh, Lucas's creative decisions, he at least was making creative decisions. Right. And so I'm uh, a big fan of that. I will say outside of Empire, my second favorite is Rogue One. I think Rogue One. Let's is- go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like it was it's not a flawless movie, uh, but boy, I sure do love it. And, you know, I, I wasn't really very interested in the upcoming Cassian Andor series until I saw the first trailer and realized, oh, it's it's basically shot and everything in the same style as Rogue One. And it's very much, you know, trying to build on that same feeling. And, and you know, it's just exactly what I want out of a uh, a Star Wars story set in like the classic trilogy time frame. I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I, I completely agree when it didn't really hit me that Andor was going to be a Rogue One follow up until I saw that trailer and I saw how gritty it was and I saw yeah. the exact era and perspective they were going for something that and like we- academically I knew it's like of course he's a character from Rogue One but yeah. I didn't realize <laughs> it was it was some of the same creators right uh so like that was a pleasant surprise and so like I went from not caring to being super hype I I'm right there with you and and you know I I don't want to guess as to your feelings as to the the most recent Boba Fett and and Obi-Wan forays how how did those sit with you so I haven't finished Obi-Wan yet. My wife and I have watched the first three episodes, um, cool, but cool. as a result of our like two month long road trip, we got super behind on everything. And so we've kind of been watching everything in drips and drabs and I'm, I'm enjoying Obi-Wan. Uh, it's kind of weird because Obi-Wan is like, I'm watching it. I'm like, eh, you know, like this is an extremely well told story. It's very interesting and compelling. It's an interesting choice of subject matter. Um, I'd, because I'd like, have to agree. Like I, you know, I think there's like I think the best thing about it is that we get to see you and McGregor really, you know, digging into this role 
in a way that maybe he didn't even get to across the the, the three movies. Uh, like he's fantastic. I, I think all the casting and acting, everything is really great. There is something that my storyteller heart questions about whether or not we needed uh, the mystery of what happened in the intervening time frame for for Obi-Wan specifically, if we needed that dispelled. Uh, but again, I'm not done with it yet. So uh, maybe come to the end of the series, I'll be like, oh, yes, of course we did. Right. But so far, <laughs> it's one of those things that I think it's really well done and I'm really enjoying it and I want to keep watching it. I, I loved season one of The Mandalorian. I thought season two was pretty good, too. It has its ups and downs. And like it's another like late uh, season two of Mandalorian and then Boba Fett. Uh, I sort of feel the same way about in that, like, I really like the acting and everything. I really like a lot of the aesthetics of it. I think maybe I'm kind of done with tattooing for a while. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And like the weird. Uh, episode detour into Mandalorian season 2.1 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that was like, it was a cool, interesting episode. I will also say like, and this is just, you know, now that I don't work on star Wars, I can say things like this personally, <laughs> yeah, yeah. personally, uh, I want more things that aren't pure callbacks to specific characters or events. Uh, than we get in modern sort of Star Wars storytelling where it's like everything is connected. And like, you know, if if you're watching Boba Fett or Mandalorian, right, like you won't get half the references if you didn't watch Rebels or Clone Wars. Right. Like, you know, I, I, I could use like the one thing I really liked about season one of the Mandalorian was it was very new. Right. Yes. Like it was it was it, it picked like, you know, cherry picked little elements here and there. But otherwise, it, it was very new. And I felt like season two and then season three or then Boba Fett very much leaned harder into the continuity side of things than I, uh, than I typically enjoy that. Having been said, I thought the Ahsoka Tano episode of, uh, a Mandalorian was freaking great because it, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it felt like a Kurosawa. Uh, exactly. It was right? straight <laughs> out of Kurosawa. And we know yeah. that star Wars is excellent when it's straight out of Kurosawa. I, I agree. And so like, you know, that that's the thing that always makes me feel so torn about the most recent series is that, you know, I, I might have these sort of philosophical quibbles with things within individual episodes or stories or elements. I'm like, I loved this, right? Like every moment that, you know, like like every moment in that episode, I'm completely on board. Right. So, you know, I very torn uh, in a lot of ways. I will say it's all good. It's like it's all very good. It's all interesting. It's just like, you know, there's a lot of competition for good TV out there. Like, you know, oh, I, definitely. It's so hard to carve out time for anything uh, that isn't like above a, a much higher bar than it used to be. Because like, you know, take, take us back 15 years, 10 years, whatever. Right. And, you know, you would say like, yeah, something the quality bar of like, you know, Obi-Wan or the Mandalorian, it just blows everything out of the water. Well, all of TV has gotten so much better and so much stronger that it's just a higher, higher bar to clear. And so, like, we watched the first three episodes of Obi-Wan, and then I was like, you know, uh, I'm enjoying this, but I kind of want to tr- check out that uh, the new Strange New World Star Trek series. And we start on that, and, like, I devoured that show. Like, we, my, my wife and wow. I just loved it, right? And so, like, you know, it's it's one of those deals where like everything is kind of great right now, right? And so like 
you have to pick the best great thing, which, boy, let's talk about an embarrassment of riches or first world problems, right? <laughs> the Star Wars nostalgia bucks only get you so far, right? When everything else on TV is just as good, if not better. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I say, I'm super stoked about Mandalorian season three. I think Andor looks amazing, right? Uh, so like they're they're doing they're doing good stuff, right? And and a lot of times my wife and I will be watching, like we were watching Boba Fett. And she was like, you look like you hate this. I was like, I don't hate this. I like it a lot. I just would have made different decisions. Right. It's, and she's it's just the like, truth. You snob. Yeah. Right. She was just like, you are a snob. We say it all the time on the show when we, you know, are, are giving advice on Star Wars storytelling. The strongest, most potent moments Star Wars has and ever will have are when something's new. You know, Star Wars wasn't meant to be this nostalgic cash. And, you know, think about Darth Maul's double lightsaber ignition for the first time. Think about the bounty hunters in Empire Strikes Back. Like when we see new, interesting angles and when we copy Kurosawa, Star Wars is really, really <laughs> freaking good. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, man. Like, I, th I think I think it's just it's also very good that anything where you're just like, oh, I would have done something differently stands out all the more, you know, 100 percent. That's fair. We uh, so I, I think we're pretty well saturated on on Star Wars <laughs> memories right now. So I, you get I, me talking, I and I will ramble. No, it's good. That's that's we're, we're happy to do. We're here. We're here to record your rambles. Star Wars RPGs yeah. are our next topic. Perfect segue, I think. I don't need to tell you this, Rodney, but Star Wars RPGs are not exactly the thing on everyone's mind uh, all the time, even among like hardcore, dedicated fantasy role players. What was your first experience like with Star Wars role playing, and and how did it impact you well i mean in a lot of ways no not in a lot of ways in in one very big way uh star wars role-playing was my introduction to role-playing games i had played some D D when i was like 13 14 maybe a little younger like 12 13 so in that area but the first rpg that i really got into on my own was the west end games star wars uh, rpg perhaps not surprisingly one year on a trip to disney world when we were coming out of star tours and walking through the gift shop there was a Star Wars RPG core book there that I picked up and I honestly didn't know what it was. Right. Like I was just like, well, what is this? It's got a bunch of pictures of things I like in it. I, I think I bought <laughs> a core book and oh, gosh, what, what book was it at the time? Was it the trilogy special edition book? Uh, so this is pretty late. This was no, th no, this would have been like 96. So it wasn't trilogy special edition, but it was something uh, in like the 96 or might have been Dark Empire. I can't remember which one it was. Anyways, uh, so I, I picked up the book and didn't realize it was a role playing game. Started reading it on the eight hour drive back home, realized it was an RPG. And I was just like, oh, I am into this. Uh, and so like that was that was what got me into RPGs as a hobby, really. And then like uh, over the course of the next couple of years, I had just you know been running my own campaigns and i took a lot of my uh campaign notes and like basically put them into html and then threw them up on a, on the web so that when i went to college i would have all my notes but i wouldn't have to carry like all my notebooks and everything and like have all my custom stats and everything and that actually ended up becoming like the pre pre precursor to swrpg network which ended up becoming the precursor to me becoming a professional game designer. So, you know, there's a very clear through line from like that first Western game Star Wars book to where I am today. Wow. 
That's amazing. So that that website you said, what was that? Star Wars RPG? Uh, Also, the first one I created was literally just uh, Rodney Thompson's Star Wars stat repository. It was nothing. It was like (laughs) nice garbage 1998 website with uh, that I threw up on the University of Tennessee servers because like they had given me my account (laughs) earlier in the summer. And I was just like, sure, I'll throw this up and not to worry about it. And like, you know, content was not. Uh, widespread back in the day. So people started finding it and they started messaging me about it or whatever. And then I started tidying it up. And then my freshman year of college, I put together uh, what did it call oh, the Star Wars RPG database, which was like where I took all the stuff that I've been creating for my junky garbage website and actually turned it into like a real, like, you know, semi well-designed website. Because uh, I was a computer science major at the time, so I had a little bit of uh, savvy in that regard. Uh, and then eventually me and another guy who was running another Star Wars RPG website, uh, we Voltroned our powers together and created SWRPG Network, which was what like that really took off because we had each other's resources. And he was a much, much better web designer than I was. Uh, so he he was able to like he he was really good with like database programming and things like that. So like the the site couldn't exist without. Uh, I don't know if I should say his real name, but I'll his his no need. his pseudonym <laughs> was Armaj Madar, and uh, he was uh, like like no question like the principal architect behind the site. And then I was doing most of the content work. You know that that was what kicked off that whole side of my early free career. So one quick note, this, this, this uh, topic reminded me a Reddit user, Alex van D one asked if you were Moradin on an old star Wars RPG website. Was that you? Yeah, that was me. Wow. Wow. That goes way back. So, I mean, I haven't used that since, uh, I guess since I got hired at wizards in 2007, (laughs) but Speaking of of this time, um, I, I can see that the timeline we're building here very clearly. Uh, according to my research, you were 20 years old when Chris Perkins reached out to you and asked if you would like to co-author your very first Star Wars RPG book. Yeah, not just my first Star Wars RPG book, but my first RPG book, period. Uh, it was my first professional writing credit. And a lot of that just came out of uh, when I was working on the SWRPG Network website. Uh, I was building really good relationships with the folks at Wizards. And I was cranking out a fairly high volume of content. Uh, you know, my my goal, and I didn't always hit this goal, but my goal was I wanted to have one new stat block or or character or whatever you want to say uh, on the site every day. So it's just like, wow, one piece of content every day was the goal, right? Uh, and, you know, I was a freshman in college, so I had that kind of time on my hands. <laughs> yeah, Seriously. Yeah. Time, yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, so like I had built a good relationship with Chris and J.D. Weicker, who had who was working at Wizards at the time, and uh, they decided to give me a shot because they were looking for new freelancers. And that that was literally the first freelance game design I ever did. Uh, and it it essentially kicked off my my entire career. But yeah, I was 20. Just amazing stuff. That's so inspiring. I, I can think about, you know, I, I was 20 not very long ago and just the feel that that feeling of 
being able to work on something that I was so passionate about at that time, I, I would be I would be breathless. I, I would I would probably pass out. And, you know, the thing is, it came at it couldn't have come at a more crucial time because uh, my my family didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I, you know, my parents were helping me pay through college, but uh, I was working like, you know, two jobs at the time to try and pay my way through school. And uh, the reality was that I was not going to be able to pay my tuition the next year. Um, I, I had, I had basically, you know, burned through what reserves I had, uh, and like, you know, Tennessee's, uh, university, of Tennessee state school tuition was not super expensive, but it was more than I had. Right. So I was looking at like not being able to finish my degree. And then, uh, right as I was making that realization, Chris offered me this and I was like, Oh, what I make off of this will pay for two more semesters of college. Right. And so like that, like it, it literally saved me from dropping out of college. That's incredible. I, I love that star Wars role playing got you through college. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, because like it did once, that for you too, huh? Steven? Yeah, it, it did in a different way, but it, it very much did. <laughs> well, like, and once I'd written that first book with, with JD, cause JD Weicker and I co-wrote the hero's guide. Once I'd written that, I went to Gen Con the next year and I could go to other publishers and say, Hey, I've written for Wizards of the coast. Do you have, freelance work. Right. And, you know, that that kicked off the next like seven years of my freelance career. Wow. And about seven years later, you moved to D.C. to break ground on Star Wars Saga Edition. Uh, sort of. So okay. uh, it's it's uh, Seattle, actually, not, okay. not Washington, D.C., but like Seattle. Oh, I that, think the, I, the, I read online Washington area and just the made other the, Washington. Yeah. Yes. Wow. OK. And actually what happened was uh, so Chris Perkins was the lead designer on Star Wars Saga Edition, and he had already recruited uh, Owen Stevens and then he recruited me and the three of us uh, worked on the core book together with Chris as sort of the lead designer and then Owen and I contributing to the design as well. Uh, and so we produced the core book. And then they were looking uh, at the, I mean, I can't remember what year this was or month or anything, because I've slept since then, but uh, they were looking at them <laughs> turning it into a product line again, right? Because they, it, it, there'd been a little bit of a hiatus um, while we worked on it. And so they were like, Hey, you know, we're going to open a position for someone to be the lead designer of the star Wars RPG product line internally. Uh, and I applied for it and that's the job they eventually hired me for. But there was a big gap because like we finished working on the core book uh, as designers, right? Like there's tons of follow on work that had to be done by developers, editors, layout, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but like I turned over that the design side of it six months before I, I even flew out to Seattle for the interview. Uh, you know, then it's another two months before I accept the job and move from Knoxville, Tennessee to Seattle, get settled in and start working on it. And you know, that, so basically at that point, we're at eight months from design turnover to uh, the time I move out and the book's not done yet. Like it, it's still being edited and developed. So like a, a lot of what I did when I first got to Seattle was I was overseeing or shepherding the book through the next phase of the process. Right. Which was basically the um, managing editing phase where our managing editors would go into a laid out book. And basically make sure everything was in tip top shape. Right. And so I was working with like Kim Mohan, who is just a legend in the tabletop RPG industry. Uh, he and I worked really closely together to, to get the core book out the door. At this point, Chris has transitioned to working on D&D fourth edition at the time, which hadn't been announced. 
Uh, and so, like, I walk in the door on the first day, and they're like, "By the way, we're working on the next edition of D and D." Oh, okay, cool. Oh man. Uh, and so then, you know, at that point, it's been eight months since I I start I did my turnover on the uh, core book, and we have to start planning supplements. So we know there's going to be a huge gap between the core book and the very first supplement which came out, which was Starships the Galaxy. Uh, and so we, you know, like it was very much a hit the ground running kind of situation. Uh, where you know all of the core book had been done with me as a freelancer, Owen was a freelancer, and then Chris was in house, and so you know like that that was much more like a traditional freelance project, and then you know get in house and finally start working on the core books, and then at that point I sort of take over as the the designer of the RPG product line. So I didn't know that the bulk of the core rulebook design was done by by freelancers. I mean, not just any freelancers. It was you and yeah. Owen Casey Stevens. But yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, like we had a good rapport. Owen and I had known each other for years at this point. Chris and I had known each other for a while. So um, in a lot of ways, it wasn't dissimilar from how like I would work with any other designers on like a core system. I think the big difference was that um, we knew we were going to build off of existing systems. Like we we knew very early on, we're like, hey, we want to adapt like the kind of uh, D20 modern style character creation, et cetera. Right. And the skill system was like an early test for the way that the uh, skills would end up working in D and D fourth edition. So like we had some things that were already established and we had a really good rapport. So, um, and, and like Owen and I got to stay in essentially constant communication with each other. So uh, even though it was freelance, it was, it was a very collaborative process and, and, you know, Chris was able to coordinate everything from Seattle and, 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 you know, it, it worked out great. I thought. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I can only imagine what, what those conversations, those email threads were, were like. I can only imagine it too, because it's been a long time. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> you mentioned previous systems as you started breaking ground and, and working on, on saga edition was that old WEG book that you first picked up in the nineties. Was that, was that on your mind too? when when you sat down to do this, um, a little bit. Uh, I would say that I, we were probably more informed by the previous six, seven years of D20 game evolution um, more than what had come before. And just because like the Western games D6 system is such a skill driven system with, you know, no, no concept of classes or anything that uh, it's just it's very different. And, and like we knew that part of the requirements that we're going to be put on us that it needed to be a D20 game and you need to have classes and levels. Yeah. You know, there were just certain things that had to have. So like mechanically, I couldn't take a lot of inspiration from it, but you can definitely see throughout the product line that content wise, uh, I tried to bring back as many old things as I could just because like, you know, you, you write what you like. There's lots of very old callbacks to those West end games books in Swissy that, that I'm sure made it in because of uh, your and, and others love for them. Yeah, I think I snuck a Plato key reference in somewhere as well. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, it was a good times. Very nice. There's one question that I was wondering that all my friends were wondering that, uh, Sam, who is not my friend was wondering <laughs> all of our listeners. Um, what's, what are, what's one thing or a few things in Swissy that, sorry, did, did we say that we call it Swissy yet? Did that slip I, out? I picked that up. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. We, we, we call it Swissy. We, we've learned that's not very common when we started the podcast, but, but our circle calls it Swissy and I'm sure a few others out there by now do, but yes, starting over, 
Is there any particular aspect or, or aspects of Swissy that you're, you're proud of designing and, and what makes them special? I mean, it's hard for you to pick anything out, especially about the core game, because we were absolutely standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like, yes. You know, the whole talent tree system was very much an outgrowth of D20 Modern. And, you know, the classes were very much an outgrowth of the original uh, uh, D20 Star Wars RPG. So, you know, a, a lot of what we were trying to do would just sort of shepherd the best of what had come before and try and make it into a cohesive game. I can think back on cer- certain things that that uh, appeared more in the uh, supplements than in the core book that I could point to. Like, I, I'm actually I was really happy with the way that the uh, squad mechanics, which I think first appeared in galaxy at war uh turned out that's correct uh yeah so i, I really like the the way the squad mechanic i mean, listen man it's been a hot minute so no 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 <laughs> I, I get it i get it uh I, I really liked how that turned out i actually uh was super proud of starships the galaxy as a whole largely because that was like the first book that i got to be the lead designer on uh for for wizards right and and in-house right so it was I was really proud of that book. Um, a thing that I am probably stupidly proud of that no one else would care about <laughs> is that after like the second or third book, uh, I started working like extra with my art directors to make sure that like as many, if not every ship and vehicle that was statted out in a book would also get an illustration somewhere or whether it's like <laughs> included in another scene or something like that, which, you know, like I'm sure a lot of people did don't even notice that. Right. But like almost like, especially in the latter half of the, the, uh, the supplements, you can definitely see where like me and the art director were working really hard to make it so that like, even if it's like separated by 30 pages from its stat block, you know, a picture of this <laughs> ship is in this book somewhere. No, that's that's great um, because, you know, for one reason, it, it helps build the legacy still to this day. So many years later, a lot of those little items or ships, what have you, any equipment that's still like the only art they have. And they wouldn't <laughs> have any art if you if you didn't push for it with with the art director. So I, I think that's a fantastic touch. And when you're sitting down at the table, you know, making up these little brain stories in your head about Star Wars, it's pretty cool to have a nice picture of the new toy that you're picking up. Yeah, and I think like um, another good example of that early on was the in Starships of the Galaxy, we included deck plans for more than one ship, which like there just there weren't a ton of deck plans in the the D20 Star Wars uh, supplements up to that point. And so I really want to make sure like each one of these ships is going to have a stat block, an illustration. We're going to do, you know, some really nice uh, deck plans for quite a few of these. Like I, I really wanted there to be a lot of visual representation in the books because I'm a very visual person. And I, in fact, like a lot of my more modern uh, game designs lean really heavily on this idea of art and illustration as a faster way to absorb something than reading text. That's, that's excellent. I remember I I had in my research, I found that you did regret that an athletics skill didn't make it into the final game. Sure. I'm sure I said that at some point. Yeah. (laughs) Is there anything else that you, sorry, let me start over. Is there anything you regret that didn't make it into Swissy in the end? Uh, Is there anything you change about Swissy now? Asks a Reddit user 
Tsushi no Ketsu? Yeah, you know, um, I think my answer to this would make a lot of fans to the game unhappy is the thing. Right? <laughs> oh, now I really want to hear it. <laughs> so, uh, and, and here's OK. So to pull back the curtain on professional game design just a little bit. The thing that often happens that people don't realize is that we are our own biggest critics, right? And it is actually a good thing for a game designer to look at their own game and see flaws and see things that they'd want to do differently. I say this is a thing that people don't realize because if, like, you know, a couple of years after a book would come out, I was to say online, like, hey, I, you know, I really wasn't thrilled with how this thing came out, the immediate response would be like, Oh, this person hates their own stuff. Oh, this person uh, like <laughs> Rodney is just trash talking this this older book because he's changed his mind or like, you know, oh, well, if you thought that, why did you do it this other way? And it's just like you learned things, right? Like it was eight months before you wrote it and before the book came out. Like, of course, you're going to have some yeah, things that change. And just like you learn things like I've I'm a vastly better game designer now than I was when I was 27 years old and first started wizards, right? Like I have learned things, right? Like it, it was a, you know, every time you do something, every time you make something, you learn something from the process. So that's all a preface to me saying like, yes, there are absolutely things that I think we should have done differently. And me saying these things now is not an indication that like, a, I thought this at the time, cause I didn't, uh, or B that I'm slagging on the game anyway, because I'm not, but like, I think the biggest mistake we made with Saga Edition was we didn't focus enough of our energy on making it easy to run. Like we put a lot of effort into like really making sure that you had tons of character options. There's a lot of flexibility so that you could really make the character that you wanted to make, you know, really true to the the Star Wars setting and you know everything. And like that, that all like on the player side, I think we did really great stuff. But right out of the gate, it's hard to run the game, right? Stat blocks are complicated, right? And a thing that I think we could have spent a lot more effort on was looking at what a game master needs to run an encounter or an adventure and streamlining it and simplifying it and making it easier to get on. And like a thing that we we argued about actually during the development of the core rulebook was, you know, at one point I, I had sort of asked the question like, hey, you know, do enemies need to follow the same creation rules as uh, player characters, right? This is a big thing, you know, that third edition was sort of third edition D&D was sort of hailed for at the time was that like, oh, yeah, like monsters and characters sort of player characters sort of use the same building blocks, right? And so like this, this was sort of the, the debate we were having, you know, six years after uh, third edition had come out. I was like, you know, do, it does that need to be true, right? And, you know, the the argument that kind of came back was like, well, you know, Star Wars is largely a universe made up of people and aliens. So it makes sense for them to use the same rules because, like, you know, there there's not that much difference between, you know, a a human soldier and a, a stormtrooper. Right. Uh, and, you know, I can I can see that argument. But I think what we weren't taking into account at the time was how challenging complex encounters get or high level encounters get like we made a game that goes from levels one to 20. And like, if I, if I had my druthers, we would do a lot more work to make it so that running games where there are huge numbers of enemies or high level enemies or whatever is easier. I just like, I think that 
like it would have been such a boon to the game's longevity for that to have been a consideration. And we just didn't prioritize that. Uh, and I wish we had. And, you know, you guys made a, a beautiful final product that has persisted, you know, well over a decade later worldwide. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're, I mean, I, I started the podcast about it. What was that? Almost a year ago now. Um, October. <laughs> yeah, October. Yeah. But I, I think that's a valid criticism. I mean, I've I've ran into that issue. We we always say that encounter design in Saga Edition is an art form, not a science. Mm-hmm. Our favorite adjustment to that is is adding a little more structure to make it easier to run. There's a adaptation of Pathfinder's budget XP encounter building system adapted for Saga Edition out there, and it takes all the mystery out of it. You have a budget mm-hmm. of XP that you spend on enemies, and it's amazing. It's a, it's mm-hmm. like peanut butter and jelly uh, when it comes to to Saga Edition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I think one of the things that uh, made me realize this was like I, w- I was running my own Star Wars Saga Edition games and they would always kind of peter out about eighth, ninth, tenth level. Right. And, you know, other than the playtest game that we we ran to playtest the Dawn of Defiance campaign, almost nothing went to high levels. Right. And it just it was, you know, not about not enjoying the game. It was a lot of it was just fatigue on the game. master. I don't know. I I, I just. The philosophy of Star Wars games is always tricky because some people want it to be a simulation of Star Wars. Some people want it to be a game. Some people, you know, fall in between that. And I think where I started out my career much more on the this is a simulation of Star Wars. uh, I have definitely drifted much farther into the this is a game that is meant to replicate cinematic experience right um so i you know just different philosophies and and different perspectives over time but yeah like if we made the game easier to run and and just like i am i'm specifically saying easier to run because like that can encompass a lot of different things right like do stat blocks need to be this complex the answer is no but like you know things like that if we had taken time to consider those i think it becomes easier to run games last longer people are more willing to pick up the mantle of game master and the game. I mean, like you say, it was successful and still, still is, you know, has a very strong legacy. Right. So like, this is not me saying like, I am, we made something terrible. Right. No, it's just, you know, like (laughs) would it have been even better if it was something that the anchor player, the game master uh, felt less pressure or felt less complexity when they're sitting down to run or prep for the game. And, you know, that's a that's a sentiment, I think, that that are the history of TTRPGs since then has been very kind to. I mean, the the hottest, biggest RPGs right now that people are are playing and loving emphasize ease of, of running, emphasize ease on the yeah. Game Master. Fifth yeah. edition, Pathfinder, second edition and Starfinder all are very proud of how much they take off the Game Master. Yeah. And, and you know, it's. It's also something that uh, just the the game design philosophy of the industry as a whole has shifted a lot over the last 20 years. Right? Oh, yeah. Like the rise of indie RPGs and the the way that they have flourished, I think, has given the wider RPG design community uh, a lot of perspective that maybe the more traditional RPGs didn't necessarily have. I was going to save this question for a little bit later, but I, I think it's a good one to ask now. Uh, knowing what you know now. Uh, Reddit user Escatonia asks, would you ever take another swing at this? Say it's a Disney blank check scenario. Uh, what what would you think Saga <laughs> 2 would, would be like? I wouldn't design Saga Edition again. 
uh, I would nice. a thousand percent do another Star Wars RPG, but it wouldn't look anything like Saga Edition. Oh, okay, not, not, all right, not even remotely. Uh, like, it. not that I think Saga Edition is bad. It's exactly what we should have designed at the time. Of course, uh, it's I just, just that you've learned so much. I, I've learned then. a lot, and like, I also would probably make a game that is more for me than uh, than like the the Saga Edition would be. And when I say for me, I mean. You know, forty-two-year-old guy with two jobs, a wife, a five-year-old kid. You know, less a numbers game and more a yeah, fun game. I, I mean, <laughs> like things that I value these days are lower prep time, easier pickup and play value, faster resolution. Um, you know, one of the things that I really value in a game is getting to the end of a three-hour session and feeling like I got something done. I, I really value um, being able to get a lot done during a session because like I like to get to the end of the session and, and look back and say like, oh, yeah, we really told some stories here. Uh, I like a brisker pace. Uh, I like resolution that doesn't take as long. And, you know, the the funny thing is you know, I've, I've really struggled with balancing this a lot over the last couple of years because, you know, I've, I've put together some of my own RPGs that have really uh, uh, played into these you know philosophies. Right. And then they come with their own downsides, right? Because like it's very easy to go with something like a, a fate or, or you know that style system, and like character creation is very like you know designed around telling me exactly who your character is. But you can also drift into with a lot of these games, uh, including games that I've designed, uh, situations where like yeah, you know, like it's true that you have really created this you know fascinating rich character. But it kind of doesn't matter because everyone's kind of uh, equally good at the things that they are good at. And like you're there's not any of the like, I don't want to say crunchiness of character creation, but decisions don't the specialization, yeah. the specialization. But like decisions don't quite matter as much uh, in, in a lot of the sort of lighter touch uh, games and in some of the games that I've, I've designed as well. Right. So, you know, I'm probably uh, I'm drifting a little bit back towards the you know more robust character creation but what i want is um i want players to make big choices that are impactful right uh and uh big choices are things like uh i pick my species and class and i'm ready to go right and like or, or you know my my a and my b or my a and my b and my c and i'm ready to go right yep. big impactful choices not uh, lots of micro choices. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I, I would probably want to do is apply that same make big choices to uh, to character creation, but then make sure that when you make a big choice, it really makes a difference in how things go during the game. Right. But yeah, like I, I, I think, you know, the uh, Disney blank check uh, to Rodney version of the game now probably looks like something closer to like Dusk City Outlaws, the game that I, I made back in 2017 or or these other sort of box set games that I've tried to make. Because the thing is, like. There's a bunch of tabletop RPGs out there for Star Wars. There's oh, yeah. D20, there's D6, there's Fantasy Flight, right? Like there's all these different games out there. Like you're you're probably already being served by one of these games if you like that kind of game. Right. So. If I, you know, and, and again, in this fantasy scenario, if it's the modern RPG market that I'm introducing this game into, I'm probably not trying to compete with Fantasy Flight or Saga Edition <laughs> or whatever, right? I'm probably trying to aim at a different experience, right? Something that you might like to have on your shelf 
that sits alongside that more traditional experience, right? So like, hey, we're going to play a six-month campaign. Okay, use the more traditional thing. Hey, we're going to play a two-session mini campaign. Use this one over here, right? Something that is more tailored towards an experience that is not well-served by the the big meaty thing because like a thing that is true right now for me as a as a as a player not necessarily as a designer but as a player is that if i if someone's like hey we should play this new game and i'm like great i'll go buy the book and i buy it and it's a 500 page hardcover i'm kind of <laughs> checked out already right like yes that's fair not not that the game's not probably really interesting but I've already got a shelf full of 500 page hardcover, right? <laughs> like it, unless the game really does something drastically different or unique than all the other 500 page hardcover books on my shelf, I, I kind of don't care, right? Like, let me, let me know like what's different or unique about it. Right. So I would want to build something that is more aimed at like pick up and play fast pace, something where the, like has like an expected, um, campaign duration like one of the things i really like about uh this game that my buddy rob schwab designed called shadow of the demon lord it has a very clear expectation that you are going to play 10 sessions of this game because you level up after every session it's a 10 level game that's it right and he built the whole system around it i think i'd probably want to build something like that where it's like yeah you're gonna play i'm gonna say a number you're gonna play nine sessions of this game Three for episode one, three for episode two, and three for episode three, right? Okay, Give it a really I like that structure a lot. Or whatever, right? Something like that where it has a really clear structure, really easy to pick and play, not try and replace your super meaty Saga Edition or Fantasy Flight or whatever game that you're already playing, but something that is like, okay, you know, you, you have a need to satisfy, which is, hey, we're going to take a break between these two campaigns or, hey, you know, we're trying to put it in a new, a new game group, but nobody really has a lot of experience game mastering or, hey, we're just trying to get to know each other as a game group. So we need to play something for a couple of months to to really get to know each other. I, I would want to aim it at something like that. And I think a lot of that just boils down to over the last few years, like, you know, really like the last 10 years, I should say, I've come to realize that I really value a clear use case for a game uh, or a clear experience that a game provides. Uh, And that's not to say like, you know, a big 500 page hardcover can't do that. Like one of my favorite (laughs) games that's come out in the last couple of years is, uh, well, both the uh, alien RPG from Modifius. I was going to mention that actually. (laughs) And, uh, and actually Star Trek adventures as well. Um, Nice. Both both of those two games, like they're big hardcover books, but they deliver a very specific experience. Right. So, yeah, the, the Aliens RPG, I'm glad you brought it up. It does have that really cool. It's got that cinematic and campaign yeah. styles of play. Yeah. It's got that one session idea. And then like, oh, you can do a 10 session setup as well if you wanted to. Yeah, I like that. that that's a that's an excellent idea. And I think that's the reason I picked up that book, by the way, is because I was like, oh, it's got I can play it. Uh, the one shot version of the game. <laughs> like, that's great. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, you know, like. I if a game comes at me with like, okay, the experience of this game is whatever you want and it's an infinite world of possibilities. And this campaign, this book will be all you need to play games for the next two years. I honestly am less inclined to pick that (laughs) book up than I am the you're going to play this game for three sessions. And that's a complete, complete experience here, here. Not that I'm not going to play for the next two years because I am, of course, but I like playing lots of games. And so, like, I'm I'm more inclined to 
to try and make a game that players can pick up, get the experience of it over the course of, let's say, three to ten sessions. Right. And then it can go back on the shelf for a while or they can hand game mastering responsibilities to someone else and they can run it for a while. But like something that is not trying to be everything to everyone uh and, and like you know i said earlier that that saga edition was very much in the in the philosophy of like hey we want to simulate star wars and so that means it's very big and very broad and you know encompasses this very huge possibility space and like that's great but that game already exists and people are still <laughs> now it's not super readily available so maybe i also ask uh, Disney for permission to do reprints or something, but <laughs> please do. Uh, yeah. Rodney, that's that's amazing. Um, th- this retrospective on Saga Edition is is precisely what I wanted to explore with this interview. And there are literally gold nuggets falling out of your mouth right now as you as you speak. So so thank you. Your your thoughts, those that you've shared with us today have been on my mind and on a great many other people's minds, I'm sure. Thank you for listening to Dark Times podcast, dear listener. And a big, another big thanks, well, a big thanks to Rodney Thompson for being a part of this interview. Steven and I also want to thank the patrons for, without you, we wouldn't be here. Like, this wouldn't be happening. They, they cover all of our hosting fees. And also, Steven and I want to announce a special something. For yes, you absolutely. Uh, patrons, of course, you know, the, the Patreon's a tip jar and there's some goodies there to, to entice you a little bit. But it's largely to help fund the show and, and fund the show the patrons do. Like Sam just said, you guys cover our From recording. the show the patrons do. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Sam just said, you know, you guys cover new recording equipment. We got a new logo from our artist friend that is going to be all over. Maybe you've guessed it by now. Merch available exclusively to you patrons. If you're in the $5 tier, update your address because pretty soon there's going to be a sharp sticker four inches by four inches coming your way. If you happen to be in the $10 tier, there's a full blown t-shirt coming your way with the dark times podcast, uh, holo D cron logo, uh, shipping straight D 20 cron is D- what I've been calling. Yeah. D 20 cron. That's a good name for it. So to thank you, we love this show and we love that you guys so obviously love this show. This is our way of saying, thanks, putting these funds to work and giving you something tangible for sh- like real like merch. I didn't think I've ever had merch, Sam. I, I didn't think that would ever happen. <laughs> you told me when we started the show, you told me being on Spotify was on your bucket list. I don't think having merch of your own show was ever something feasible in your life. No, it was not <laughs> up for consideration at all. I, I thought we'd be lucky to make it to Spotify. I thought in our wildest dreams after like 100 episodes, we get to interview Rodney. And, and here we are today. <laughs> oh, man. Thank wow. you guys so much. Like we always say. Patreon funds make it all possible. Your love for the show, you telling a friend, you sharing it online with others is a huge thanks. And when you just write in with your support, if you just want to say hello, shoot us an email and and thank us. We That means everything when you guys do that. So sincerely, everyone listening, thank you so much. Uh, next week, we're back to our normal schedule. We have a lot of emails to cover, actually. You guys have really been sending in the good stuff. There's like a full-on build coming down the line. Yeah, too, from it's, a fan. it's been a while since we've had a, a fan build. Yeah, and so that'll be fun. Once again, thank you, Rodney. Thank you to all of our dear listeners. Really appreciate each. Let's get you guys back into the interview with Rodney Thompson. Absolutely. I wanted to tug the conversation back to Saga Edition just a little bit for some some fun trivia that I'm sure people are hungry for. 
Do you happen to recall a favorite species? Uh, Reddit user Lil Literalist is is curious. And you can say human, too. I, I think I've mostly played humans. You know, uh, I've played a lot of humans. Um, my big thing, my big beef with with uh, humans is that I think there's a huge missed opportunity when we did humans. What we should have done is Corellians and Alderanians. Ah, and, uh, oh, uh, you know, whatever. As, as like fully self-contained like species. Right. And just said like, yeah, sure, they're they're a type of human. And maybe they all share like one trait or something like that. Right. But I uh, have I know people have heard me say this before, but my uh, rule of Star Wars character creation that I always make my uh, groups adhere to is uh, what I call the episode four room rule, which is uh, in this party, there can be one alien, one Jedi and one droid. (laughs) And if there's an alien Jedi, that counts as both the alien and the Jedi, right? I see. I see. I like that. I yeah. like that. But really. like that would be a, that. That's a lot more interesting when I say that, and you can pick from Corellian and Alderanian and Kuati and you know Coruscanti and Dathomiri and blah blah blah. Take your pick, right? Uh, so like, yeah, that I think that would be. I wish we'd done something like that. Favorite non-human alien species. <laughs> Oh boy, that's tough. Uh, There's only like forty or something. I, I have a really <laughs> soft spot for the Fiorin, um, just Very because. Nice. Yeah. In in college, my buddy Shay ran a uh, Star Wars D twenty game where I played a Fiorin Antarian Ranger uh, named Solm, <laughs> and Solm was uh, uh, very much uh, built archetypally as like the gruff grumpy uh interior ranger paramilitary soldier type so i've always had a soft spot for the fjorin also like i love this idea that you have a species that just gets stronger and stronger and stronger until one day they keel over <laughs> yes <laughs> that's what we like about that we have a friend who played a fjorin once and it was it's just one of those unique species where it's like oh they don't just get a bonus to dexterity and charisma or whatever they get a cool thing about when they get older they get stronger <laughs> I just love this idea that you like see a completely ripped Fiora and you're like, oh, damn, that guy's about to die. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Now you must choose between uh, one of your five favorite children. Uh, Which is your favorite class? (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, It's so hard for me not to say the noble just because. Oh, yeah. Rodney's a noble head. I've always loved the idea of making that archetype work. I, I always like the idea of like leader characters that are more than just like, well, I'm going to make all the decisions. Right. I, I, I think you did a good great job. I, I also, <laughs> I also tend to play support characters in whatever game, right. Whether it's an MMO or, or whatever. Right. So, you know, like I, I think the noble falls closest into that support category overall. Absolutely. That's, yeah. And Noble is is versatile too. the fact that it's, yeah. a, it's a solid supporter and it can support in really any way you you can think of. Plus a few more. It's it's always stuck out in my mind. I don't play a lot of nobles, but it, it's a, a class I've always respected. Yeah, I think I could like, you know, one of the things that I have gotten a lot more comfortable with in my game designs lately is putting mechanics in that are heavily uh, narrative breaking in their use, right? Like giving empowering players to just create things. So, uh, you know, like the, you know, the blades in the dark style flashback, right? Where it's just like, yeah, I, 
you know, of course I have this thing that I need because uh, flashback to when I was doing all this prep work, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. I feel like That's I could great. get a lot of mileage out of that kind of thing with the noble in, in ways that I didn't at the time. So that's definitely one that I could could take another crack at. I was always I was hoping that Blades in the Dark would uh, would come up in this conversation, especially when you were speaking earlier. It's it's one that me and my playgroup have had our eyes on for for quite some time. It's a really interesting game. It, it does some neat things. I've dug through the the core rulebook, and it's it's absolutely interesting. Is is and fascinating, even is a yeah. great way to describe it. Yeah. Mr. At Antarian Ranger at Twitter.com. Uh, do you have <laughs> a, a favored organization in Saga Edition? Well, it's going to come as a great shock to you that it's the Antarian Rangers. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, obviously. I mean, I, I actually use Antarian Ranger for my handle on almost everything, because if somebody gets it, I'm like, this is a true fan right here. Um, <laughs> but, but, but the actual reason why I like them so much, A, it's like, OK, here's. Here's an organization that is basically like custom built for RPG campaigns because it's like you're the support group for a Jedi. It's like, OK, well, there's a campaign hook in a box. Right. Um, but actually, the real reason has nothing to do with the organization themselves or what they do in the real world but or in, in the world of Star Wars. But actually has to do with the creator of the Antarian Rangers, Aaron Alston. So back in 2000, I was writing the Hero's Guide and I wanted to include the Antarian Rangers as an organization because I felt like it would make a great hook for a player character. And so uh, I reached out to Aaron Alston, who I, I chit-chatted with before on the internet, and I emailed him because he had created them for background of some of his characters in Wraith Squadron. And I was like, hey, Aaron, listen, you know, I'm I'm putting together this, you know, like thousand words on the Antarian Rangers for this uh, Star Wars RPG book. You know, is there anything that maybe you wanted to say about them in one of your novels that you didn't get to or something that, you know, I should really know so that I could get the spirit of them right? And he wrote me back this like six page essay on <laughs> nice. the, the history, great. the, you know, everything. I was just like classic author. I was completely blown away by it. <laughs> and it was great. And like, honestly, that email that he sent me got me more content that I needed for the hero's guide. And I farmed it for other things later. Like I, I think we were working on uh geonosis in the outer rim worlds at one point and uh, which was for the uh, previous D20 uh, edition. But like I was working on that and I was able to pull some stuff from his email that I used in there. He, he just gave me way more than I needed and couldn't have been nicer about it. Hmm. Uh, I actually, met him face to face for the first time at Gen Con later that year uh, and, and, you know, got to thank him personally for it. He was just such a great guy and he did, you know, went, went above and beyond for a 20 year old kid that he hardly knew. And it just made such a big impression on me because this guy, you know, he, he was a New York times bestselling novelist, Right. This guy had worked on RPG supplements that I had on my shelf as a teenager, right? Like, you know, he was he was a big deal at the time and I was nobody, right? And he took the time to really help me in a way that he didn't have to. And that always left a, a big impression on me. So part of the reason why I sort of still uh, fly the Antarian Ranger flag is in memory of Aaron Austin and, and how... Uh, generous he was to me when I was just getting started out. That's such a wonderful story. I did not expect that to get so wholesome. That was excellent. <laughs> I'm also curious about what it was like to work with like capital L, capital A, LucasArts 
during mm-hmm. this time. I mean, this was a very particular time in, in the Lucas history. Reddit user Iro also asks, was there any like pressure? Um, I'd love to hear any and all thoughts and anecdotes about that. Uh, you know, uh, I had a great experience working with uh, with Lucasfilm at the time. My main point of contact was Leland Chi, who you know has been there forever. He's still you know one of the main uh, gurus over there on on continuity and everything. Leland's a great guy, and and he has been a a friend to me ever since we you know worked together on on Star Wars. So you know, like I had a great experience with him. Um, Chris Gallagher at Lucasfilm was the was our sort of point of contact for the miniatures. So we got really lucky that they were they were great, right? The only honestly like the the craziest big challenge we had was cover art for books, right? Like they were <laughs> they were very particular about cover art, but like other than that, you know, like one of the best things that that happened was like I would I would get all my um text in from freelancers, compile it into like the rough shape the book was going to be in and send it off and Leland would go over the whole 120,000 word document and mark wow. it up. Right. And be like, here, here, you, know, you can't say this. You can't see this. Uh, eventually uh, I got access to the Holocron, which was the big database that they used internally for tracking uh, continuity. That's a great name for it. Yeah. Do you know about this, Sam? There's like a legendary internal not. Lucas resource. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, I got access to the Holocron, which was super valuable for me. And, you know, honestly, like um, they were a great resource. They they uh, were able to make connections with us like they, uh, you know, one of the first books that we knew we were going to work on was the Force Unleashed book. Right. And so they uh, or I think it was probably Leland just, you know, emailed one time. He emailed me and Hayden Blackman, who was the game director on Force Unleashed. And he was like, hey, I want to put you two together because, you know, Rodney's working on this book for the game that you guys are developing. Uh, and so I got to go straight to the source and, and talk to the game director. And he provided me with like concept art and I could ask questions and things like that. So like it was early days of, you know, real cross, you know, cross media collaboration, but you know, Lucasfilm was really ahead of the curve in in trying to make that happen. Right. And so that was good. And like, I still have contacts that I, I talk to on a regular basis that I made through working with, uh, working with Lucasfilm. I mean, a couple of years after the star Wars license ended, I happened to be going through San Francisco and I just, uh, you know, sent a message to Leland. I was like, hey, hey, can I come by and, and see the yeah. you know, Lucas <laughs> Lucasfilm, what it's like? And he was like, yeah, he took the day and he like gave me and my wife and a couple of my friends a tour. Uh, you know, they, awesome. they were great. Oh. They were absolutely great. Um, other than like occasionally having to go through 35 rounds of approvals for a piece of cover art or whatever which (laughs) like whatever that's their prerogative right they're the license holders (laughs) i always had great experiences with them and they were nothing if not eager to you know coordinate and like we had curveballs get thrown all the time like force unleashed got delayed by six months which completely messed with our publishing schedule because we weren't allowed to publish before the game came out i remember uh the clone wars animated series was in production and we got sent a bunch of the scripts. And in fact, like I, I might still have a couple of those original <laughs> scripts around Whoa. here somewhere. Well, I mean, like by the time I left Wizards, those episodes had already come out and everything. Right. So of course. They, they had been declassified uh, as it were. Right. But, it, you know, like they were good about getting us those scripts early on. And then a bunch of things changed. And like the air order of the episodes changed to the point where like, some stuff that we had in a book had to be removed. 
And so like they were always, you know, very clear about like, here's the standards we want to set. But they also were super willing to work with us. So I I had nothing but good experiences working with Lucasfilm. And, you know, I I also learned a lot in working with them. Like I, I found it to be an extremely educational experience. It taught me a lot about like, what does it take to build an IP? And what are the valuable elements of building a world and a setting and, and wrangling all these different brands? And, you know, honestly, I've used lessons that I've taken from, you know, when I worked with Lucasfilm on Star Wars, I've used those lessons uh, at Bungie working on Destiny. I've used them working on my own games on the side. Like it, it, it was a, uh, it was a really great educational experience for me. And like, I, like I say, I still uh, am in touch with, you know, Leland every now and then, or like, I actually, it was through, working on the force unleashed book that I met Sam Witwer for the first time, who obviously yes. he's a big star Wars gamer. Right. Uh, I actually just emailed like he and I emailed each other literally yesterday. Right. So like, I'm still, I still have friends that I made, at, you know, working on, on uh, the game with Lucasfilm and you know, they, they made that happen. We want Sam Witwer for our next interview, by the way. That's okay. that's also right. a goal of ours. <laughs> All right. Was it like, oh, Sam, I got to do this stupid interview oh, tomorrow. These, <laughs> nerds, these nerds want to talk to me about nerd stuff. Yeah. A, another question I've had on my mind that, that you just reminded me of. How did working on a full-blown Star Wars commercial product change your perspective on Star Wars, you know, from being that kid in line to see Anthony Daniels to, you know, lead designer on the Star Wars RPG of the time? Well, he still likes it, clearly. So I do still, I do still <laughs> maybe like a it. bit. Uh, I'm not the zealous fan that I once was where I like, you know, back, you know, uh, really up through the time I was working at Wizards. I was reading every comic book. I was reading every novel. I was deep into it. And I would say one thing that's changed is that since the license ended, I sort of unclenched a little bit and and let go. And now I'm pretty. I'm pretty much a movies and TV shows only kind of fan. You know, I've, I've played the fantasy flight star Wars RPG, but uh, I, and I own the three core books for that, but I, I haven't bought any of their supplements or anything. Whereas like I have every Western games and every wizard of the coast star Wars book. Right. So like I definitely have loosened my grip on star Wars a little bit. And a lot of that was less about star Wars and more about the fact that for like five years, I was the only full-time employee dedicated to Star Wars at Wizards. Uh, that's, that's not entirely true. I was the only full-time employee dedicated to Star Wars within R&D at Wizards. So I was the lead designer of the product line. I was also the only developer, and I was wrangling the freelancers. And I was working with editors and art directors and getting approvals uh, it was super valuable because I learned a ton about the production process and it it helped me immensely later on down the road, but it was exhausting. I mean, there were I was working nights and weekends. There were like frequently, probably once or twice a week where I would just, you know, pack up my laptop from the office, bring it home and keep working at home. Right. And so, like, it was a lot. I was probably it, it would definitely not be consistent but I was probably averaging 60 hours a week. No, that's not true. Averaging 50 hours a week. Um, wow. 60 is a big number. 50 hours a week on the Star Wars books just because I had so much to do. And like, even if it was just I printed out a manuscript and I'm going over it one more time 
to make sure there's not any errors. You know, it was it was exhausting, right? And this this like that wouldn't have been so bad. But then every time a book came out, the the reaction was always very critical, right? Like I'm I'm sure that you guys feel like yeah. uh, Saga Edition was beloved, but I didn't feel like that at the time, right? Like I felt like yeah. it was a a game that like like we'd see the sales numbers and the sales numbers were great, right? And then the discourse around the game was I wouldn't say toxic because that that implies a certain aesthetic. Now it was very much focused on the game, but like it was it was harsh. The criticism was very harsh and very frequent. And like, you know, we, we were sort of chatting about this on Discord, but like I would get criticism for sort of all corners, right? Where it'd be like, yeah, people who are playing the game are like, this game's too hard to run or whatever. Or, you know, these stat blocks have all these errors in them and blah, blah, blah. Right. Or it would be <laughs> like people who were accustomed to like the Western games books, which were like authoritative uh, third or authoritative information about things before there was an expanded universe, really. Right. Uh, yeah. And then I was really focused on like producing game books who would get mad that these game books didn't have new information in them. And it was just like, I'm not trying to make new information. I'm trying to present what exists. Right. Uh, yeah, Go play Knights of the Old Republic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it was, it was just very uh, like I was putting a lot of my time and energy and, and like mental health into it. And what I was getting back was, was pretty rough. Right. And like, you know, it, it was not without its bright spots. Like, you know, we mentioned the order 66 podcast, obviously, you know, uh, chatting with those guys was, was a lot of fun. And like, you know, going to conventions was always such a breath of fresh air because when you meet people in real life, they tend to be, if they're going to come up and talk to you, they tend to be <laughs> largely pretty nice. Right. So like, you know, it wasn't all criticism, but basically except for that week out of the year, like it felt like, it was really, you know, like it wasn't like people the loud minority. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like it wasn't like people were, you know, making death threats or anything. I don't want to make it sound like it was uh, <laughs> as bad as things get these days in some ways. But it was certainly exhausting to be like, you know, I feel like I'm the only person working full time on this and I'm putting all this effort into it and it's still not good enough. Right. Um, and so when the license ended, that like that unclenching a lot of that was just sort of like i have i have put a part of my soul into this game uh and i'm i'm done with that now right so yeah uh you know it 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 wore me out a little bit it wasn't really until season one of the mandalorian came out that i said like oh i i feel like i can really enjoy star wars as a fan again and even then like i can't i can't read the novels or the the no. comics or anything like that anymore like i'm sure they're fine i'm sure they're in fact I'm sure they're great right i just i just can't i just can't read them and like someone not too long ago we were talking about um how when disney took over they basically said like okay all this stuff from before is now legends and the canon is this stuff going forward someone was like doesn't that make you mad that you put all this effort into this uh you know <laughs> this world that you know you spent years of your life contributing to it and now they've just suddenly declared that that doesn't matter and i said like no i don't care two reasons it still exists it's <laughs> two, still there two, like- two reasons one it's their ip i knew that going in like mm-hmm. i knew this wasn't mine i knew it was theirs and they were letting me play in their sandbox and two 
none of it mattered in the first place. It's, it's Star Wars, right? Like it's a fun exactly. entertainment property, right? I'm not curing cancer here. I'm giving people a fun time for a couple hours at a, at a stretch, uh, you know, a couple of days a week, right? Like, you know, just have that little bit of perspective. And plus, like, I got what I need. I, like, I got what we agreed to out of it, right? They paid me. Like, I got money. I yeah. got to live and eat and pay rent, right? And it like, didn't suck all yeah, the time. Yeah, like, you know, I, I got what we agreed on. We agreed that they would give me money and I would make them Star Wars stuff. And like, that's it. That's all there is to it. So like, yeah, I don't I don't care at all that they decanonized uh, all this stuff or whatever. Honestly, just from a purely academic perspective, it was the right thing to do. And they should have done it years <laughs> earlier. Right. And in fact, I think yeah, that, I think yeah. that there's there's so many things that they they have reintroduced that I'm just like, I wouldn't have done that either. I wouldn't have reintroduced that. Right. It's like, my, uh, you know, asking about attitudes that have changed. I have reached the point in my, this is not even like my game design side. This is my consumer side. Right. I've reached the point in my uh, gamer life cycle where I love settings and loathe continuity. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to know the history of something or whatever, or like, you know, and then in, you know, this book, Luke Skywalker stabs this guy, right? Like, I don't care about any of that anymore. What I really like <laughs> is settings that I can dig my teeth into and use. And then that that's it. Like, I don't I like if a book starts with a big timeline, I'm kind of like, I don't know about this one, guys. Uh, and Star Wars, <laughs> Star Wars is a lot of continuity, right? So that that's probably one of the reasons why the expanded universe does not hit my bookshelf that often these days. Rodney, that was, that was excellent. Thank you for, for your insight. That was a, a beautiful answer to, to, a, I think a very complex a long question. answer. That, that's <laughs> what we love here. We love long answers. We've only got you for about 15 more minutes here. I wanted to just cover, or I want to make sure that we cover two more questions. Circa order 66 days. You gave some game mastering advice that sticks with me to this day. And it was put your best ideas first. Back then, you discouraged Game Masters from the apparent instinct to put filler in between big campaign beats. And I've had those words in my mind since I first heard them, and it's helped me create more dynamic and engaging campaigns. Do you have any points of advice for to, to offer Game Masters today? Or game designers or any other storytellers yeah. of that time? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, that, like, that's still my number one piece of advice. Um, and, and the reason it's still my number one is because I have to give it to myself all the time, right? Like, uh, I, you know, I, yes. I play a lot of different games right now, and usually we play them for two or three or four months at a time. And it, even still, when it's my turn to run something, I have to fight that instinct to plan out like, OK, here are the 12 or here are the four cool ideas I have. And here's the 12 beats. So I'm going to put them at beat four, seven, 10 and 12 or, or whatever. Yeah, right. Like a song. Um, yeah. Like I, I have to <laughs> I have to give myself that advice even now. Even as many games as I've run and designed everything. So I actually still like when people ask me, like, what's your number one piece of advice? That's still it. Like, that's still my number one piece of advice. And like, maybe that means that I haven't learned anything and I'm still giving the same crappy advice that I was given 10 years ago. <laughs> but uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I think there's that. And I think also this is one that actually came out of uh, when we were designing D&D 5th edition that it took me a while to really grasp. Um, and that one is, you know, you got to remember that the story of your game is what happens at the table. It's not what you prepped. 
It's not what you think is going to happen in the future. It's not what's written into your character's backstory. The story of your game, the story that you're going to tell later is the story of what happened at your table. Right. And like, you know, keeping that in mind, like that, that seems like such an obvious thing. Right. But what I find it does is it helps keep me from getting too in my own head about backstory or whatever. Like I need to have enough that I've got the answers that I need on at the moment that I need them. But I can't get so wrapped up in trying to make something happen or set something up or whatever that I forget. Like, you know, my responsibility is right now, like as the game master, my responsibility is to make sure that an interesting story is being told at the table. And then, like, you know, you're asking about uh, game design advice. I'm going to say, again, a controversial one. uh, And that is (laughs) that in reasonable quantities, failure is actually good. Uh, And the reason I say that is because uh, it's two reasons. One, because uh, failure makes success all the sweeter. And without failure, success is meaningless. But the other one is. Nobody ever tells the story about that time that the plan went exactly according to plan, right? Nobody's like, yeah, we came up with this idea and we executed the plan and everything went fine. The end. No, nobody ever tells that story. You tell the story about the time that the wizard accidentally blew up the fighter with a fireball in the, you know, 10 foot by 10 <laughs> foot room. And then everybody had to hop in the minecart to escape the Dracolish that was shaking, right? Like, that's the fun story. The comedy of errors is the fun story that you tell later. Nobody's like, and then like nobody cares that your 12th level paladin cast divine smite and killed the lich. Like yeah, that's, what, <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. Right. What's interesting is the stories about when it goes awry. Now, again, reasonable quantities, right? Like all things in moderation, but yeah, like d- don't be afraid of failure as a thing. I think that's, that's very sage advice. Thank you for that, for that nugget. There was a gap in the little preliminary research I did for this interview um, regarding the time period between your, your transition from 5e to Destiny 2. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think that's a little bit outside the scope of what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I did want to give you a chance to go hog wild and talk about Scratchpad Publishing, sure. Spectaculars and Dust City Outlaws, because they seem yeah. really interesting. And I'd love to hear more about how your time with Saga Edition and D&D kind of brought these about. Yeah, well, so I, you know, I worked on Saga Edition until like 2012 uh, and then uh, tw- like late 2011, I think, actually. Or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> who can say anymore what time is? But regardless, I worked on Saga Edition for about four or five years. And then I worked on D&D and we'd, I did board games for a while. And then I worked on D&D 5th Edition. And then in 2015, I left Wizards to go to Bungie. Uh, and, you know, I went to Bungie. And one of the one of the many reasons why I ended up taking the job at Bungie was because they allowed you to do outside projects, uh, which Wizards did not allow. Okay, that's cool. Wizards did not allow us to do any outside work, right? Like everything that we did was owned by Hasbro. So, you know, going to Bungie and now finding myself uh, with the ability to do outside projects, I decided that I was going to basically put together my own little vanity press. And so... I put together Scratchpad Publishing, which is way fancier than it sounds because it is literally just me. <laughs> like Scratchpad wow. Publishing is one person. I I have a lot of uh, friends that I hire to do work for me. Like my buddy, you know, Logan and Dan have worked with me. Uh, Michelle Carter, who was an editor at Wizards when I was there. She still does editing work for me. Daniel Solis, who is a game designer friend of mine. 
did the layout for Dusk City Outlaws. So basically, Scratchpad Publishing is my vanity press where I get to pay my friends money to do things for me. <laughs> uh, essentially, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of times where people are just like, oh, you know, like, you know, Scratchpad Publishing, they don't like they're doing X, Y, and Z. I'm like, no, let's. Let's back up the truck on that. They is literally one guy <laughs> running the like I, I am the only full time scratch pad employee. Uh, and then Keeping I, all the plates spinning at once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and like, you know, I just I wanted to make games that I wanted to make. Right. And I wanted to make I, I, like I just I have a deep well of creative energy that needs to come out. Uh, and so, <laughs> like, you know, it's just my chance to make something of my own. Uh, and so I, I for a while I'd been wanting to make RPGs that their their goal was to help you get the game onto the table faster with no prep and just jump in and start playing. And so both Dust City Outlaws and Spectaculars are designed to be what I call pull off the shelf and play games where they like if you know how to play right? you need to know the rules, obviously. But if you know how to play, you can literally pull the box off the shelf and within 15 minutes be playing, right? Which is great for like those nights where, oh, you know, not enough people could make it. So let's do a, you know, one shot session or like, oh, like I didn't have time to do my prep work. So let's play this instead. And Dust City Allas is like a uh, fantasy heist game. Spectaculars is a superhero game. They're both box sets that lean really heavily on uh, board game components to make that off the shelf play uh, more possible. Like this, one of the things that I, I learned working on board games was that the ability to like hand components to other people is huge as opposed to like passing a book around the table. Right. Uh, and it's way easier to do uh, like, you know, GM aids that are like cards or tokens or this or that. Right. So basically both of the games are really built around this idea that they use physical components to really enable fast at the table play. And then the the sort of hook with Spectaculars uh, individually is that it is not a, this is not the uh, create your own superhero story game. It's actually the create your own comic book setting game. And what I mean by that is like, uh, it like the, the basic premise that I started with is what if I could like, you know, what Dust City Outlaws does for, uh, holding your hand so that you can put together a session very quickly. What if it did the same? What if Spectaculars did the same thing, but for building your own campaign setting? And so there is no default assumed setting with Spectaculars. It's a superhero game where when you start playing, you and your players start building the setting as you go along. And it comes with a setting book, which is this thick uh, sort of board game style uh, book that has the uh, every like spread as a different like setting element. Right. Or a couple setting elements. So it's like this is the government agency that deals with superheroes. So it's like your shield or your checkmate or something like that. This is the, you know, nation that has been in hiding for eons. Right. So it's like your Wakanda, et cetera. You know, like basically I went through and I, I came up with a list of like, uh, you know, me and my, my co-designers uh, came with this list of like, what are all these really tropey things that make up a setting? Uh, and so like each page is like one of those very generic uh you know tropey things and then they have a bunch of multiple choice questions that you answer to create your own one of those right so it's like what did the agents of your government agency dress like are they you know dressed like the men in black are they you know wearing body armor or kevlar or blah, blah blah right and so like basically what happens is as you're running the adventures and it, it comes with uh four campaigns about 50 adventures all told 
uh, each adventure is meant to be played in a single session, right? Every time one of those elements comes up in in one of the adventures, it's bolded. And if it's the first time that you have come across that setting element, you go to the setting book and fill it out immediately. So you don't have to do any work in advance. You don't have to create your setting in advance. It's just like, okay, this session, agents from the government agency are going to show up. We haven't created our government agency yet. We do that right now. And then play continues. So like you That's basically so cool. build a campaign as you go along. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I'm super proud of it. Uh, unfortunately, the game came out in February of 2019. Like a ah. month before the pandemic Ooh. started. Yeah. Ouch. Uh, and it turns out when you've built your personal uh, uh, vanity publishing uh, projects around the idea of making it easier to get together around the table and play face to face. It's not it's not great when a pandemic hits. So, you just wrote uh, a Discord bot in Python, I, I think, for, yep. for playing them online. I did. I did. And like I've done a lot um, recently to or over the last couple of years to try and make that easier. I uh, I wrote a couple of tabletop simulator uh, modules that you can download for free to play both Dusty Outlaws and Spectaculars. I wrote that Discord bot. Uh, I'd like to do more in the future. I, and I'm you know, one of the things I'm I'm looking at doing also is like, can I create a version of the game that does all the same things, but is less component heavy, et cetera? Uh, just because, like, you know, I we have no idea how long people are going to be playing remotely versus in person. So, you know, it, it's a little bit of bad luck there. But uh, also, like, this is just my for fun side vanity project. So, you know, fortunately, I haven't like I, I am extremely fortunate that I can do that and suffer the you know misfortune of the the timing of the pandemic without it really, you know, being that detrimental. So I'm just going to put things on pause for a little while and here and, you know, probably six, eight months, uh, I will fire it back up again in earnest. That's fantastic. Nice. Rodney. I think, I think we're going to let you go here. Okay. Um, I could, I could sit here and talk to you all <laughs> night long, but, but we're yeah. pretty much at that point. Rodney from the bottom of my heart as a, as a fellow gamer, as a fellow game master, thank you for agreeing to this interview and, and coming here to, dole out your wisdom as it were. Um, this was kind of a, a personal goal for me to meet you and bring your voice back to the saga edition community. So honestly, this has been fantastic. And like I said, thank you in earnest. Well, I, I really appreciate it. You know, honestly, like I say, uh, you know, we, I mentioned it, uh, when we were chatting on discord, but, uh, it's always a nice reminder, uh, when you hear that something you've created is giving people joy, especially like, you know, the, the world can kind of be uh, pretty crappy right now. And yeah, <laughs> uh, it's very easy for a lot of us. Like, you know, I, I work from home now. It's it's easy to feel isolated. It's easy to feel separated from your friends and your family, uh, even if you're you're not, you know, uh, that remote from them. Like it's it's easy to get dragged down these days. And so hearing that that something I created and or sorry, I should say something I had a hand in created. Like I, I tend to shorthand, like I created this thing, but like nothing, nothing, literally nothing I have ever worked on has been just me. Right. Like, in fact, I would argue that every successful thing I've ever worked on, uh, I worked on a minority portion of, right. Even if it's like, you know, game designed by Rodney Thompson. Yeah. That doesn't take into account, but like the, you know, other designers and developers <laughs> and artists and editors. And this, I like, this is an important thing to say, right? Because it's easy to, you know, like if I paused every time, you know, I said like, oh yeah, when I was working on blog game, 
along with, and then read off the credits list, this, this interview would have been twice as long, but it's, it's important to acknowledge that like, you know, nothing, nothing I've ever worked on would be possible without the hard work of dozens, if not hundreds of other people. Right. So like, I, I, you know, don't ever want it to seem like I uh, am making it sound like I did anything on my own, but regardless, we'll go down the list. Don't worry. We'll please do. All please of them do. Individually. Actually, the last part of this podcast would just be me reading, doing a dramatic reading of every credits page of every product I've ever worked on. There we but go. Anyways, I, I, I do find it very uplifting to hear that people are still playing a game that I worked on just because like, that's why we do it. Like we make games to be played and we make games to be played to bring happiness to people's lives. And I am one of the most fortunate people in the world that my job, the thing that I do for a living that allows me to live and, you know, sustain my life is creating happiness for other people. So yeah, like it's, it's, uh, it's a blessing and it's also something that uh, it doesn't hurt to be reminded of every now and then. That's wonderful, Rodney. Thank you. Um, I hope you enjoy. We'll, we'll be in touch. We'll get a sticker Please. for you. We'll get a T-shirt for you. Very excited. Um, we have more people we'd like to interview. We'd love to interview you again. Sure. Um, if down the line, <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, As you can probably tell, I'm a bit of a talker. And that's exactly <laughs> what what I love. I was I, I had like a nightmare last night, I think, where you like said no more than five words over two hours. Um, that would be the worst. That's thing me this time. That's, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, we'd love to get, you know, the whole old crew, Owen yeah. Stevens, you know, Sterling Hershey, Sam Whitwer. <laughs> Definitely don't don't hesitate to reach out. OK, thank you so much, Rodney. You have a okay. wonderful rest of your evening. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a it's good been one. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Dark Times Podcast. The show is produced and edited by me, Sam Stevens, my co-host. And a, a huge thanks to Rodney Thompson, honestly. Like, this show wouldn't be possible without him. Literally. No, quite literally, it, it wouldn't yeah. happen. <laughs> we, we wouldn't be doing it. Not, not, uh, not at all. <laughs> it's so nice to just, uh, you know, I, I kind of do the same thing with you, Stephen. I get you. I just wind you up and watch you go. Uh, it's nice that we could set Rodney up for some <laughs> for some great anecdotes. It was that was super incredible. It it was I, I really felt like I really wanted to do with this interview, kind of establish that timeline of Saga through his eyes. And I, I feel like we we really did that. It was it was amazing. It was incredible. Whether anyone likes it or not, it remains to be seen. But as, as long as we had a great time, that's all that matters. As always. <laughs> You can reach out to us on Twitter at DarkTimesSWSE. Email us, DarkTimesSWSE at gmail.com. Reach out to Rodney on Twitter at Antarian Ranger. Review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Don't forget to check out that Patreon for all those cool new things we talked about this episode. Uh, Steven, do you have a quote for us this week? Do it. <laughs> Prospective. We're hoping for some Sam Witwer in the future. Please. <laughs> oh, that'd be so great. If you know Sam Witwer... Uh, <laughs> if you know Sam Whitmore, I don't care. We we know the guy who knows Sam Whitmore now. <laughs> oh man! Good night, everybody. Good night. Um. Just a quick break here. Sam, am I am I talking too much? Do you want to get some questions in too? I just realized I'm doing <laughs> well, all the talking. I'm fine with you doing that. I'm here to make sure everything runs smoothly. I'm, but sure I'm, I'm doing absolutely... all the talking, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
That's what we wanted. That's precisely what we wanted. I was like, what if we get him on and he's like a really dry guy who doesn't really oh. like answering <laughs> questions? Like what if he's like, uh, Android Android? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> what if he's like, oh, yeah, Swissy's cool, you know. Don't talk to me about life. Yeah. <laughs> so 